Dana and Caitlin from Melbourne, Australia, and you're listening to Hillbilly Horror Stories. The legend lives on from the Chippewa down at the big lake, the gold gets your girl. The lake, it is said, never gives up for dead when the skies of November turn gloomy. With a load of iron ore, 26,000 tons more than the Edmund Fitzgerald weighed empty. Welcome everybody to episode 32 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. And if a song about uh, a sinking ship doesn't put you right in the mood, I don't know what does. That's what I'm talking about. Let's go down with the ship. Oh wait, we don't want to go down with the ship. I just want somebody to go down. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, this is how we starting off the night, folks. What I wanted to do first is uh, give a couple of shout-outs. You heard uh, my girl Dana and Caitlin in the very beginning give us a shout-out from Melbourne, Australia. Thanks, Thank you. guys. That was awesome. So what we're going to do in the future is every show, we would like to have one of you listeners actually send us a, a welcome, similar to what you've heard, that we can put at the beginning of each show. And uh, we can start showcasing our different countries and uh, different cities throughout the U.S. doing that, and uh, I think we've already got a stockpile, I've already got one from the U.K., I've already got one from Sweden, I've got uh, four or five from the U.S., so we'll keep doing those in the future, if you just want to just do one and send it to us, uh, that's fine, you can do it on Messenger, or you can do it on uh, email, that's how most of the people did it, so. Because you guys are amazing. Yep, and we want to do something to uh, showcase you guys a little bit, we're, we're showcased all the time, why not showcase some of you guys? And I'm still planning on meeting all of you, somehow, I don't know how, but... I don't think that's going to happen, but uh, she's got a big heart, and just not a big enough budget to <laughs> make those dreams come true. I want to do a couple other quick shout-outs tonight. Uh, Ninja wants to do a shout-out, uh, but I've told him that Malamute that listens in New York uh, is not his. And uh, <laughs> he just needs to learn that it's time to let it go. But Ninja appreciates you guys listening as well. <laughs> and doing the uh, unprofessional job we are, we will not edit that out. All right, <laughs> let's do Philip Jones from Ontario. And it's actually pretty cool to give one to Philip. Philip's gave us an iTunes review. And uh, we appreciate that very Thank much. You, we also had Lee Scott give us an iTunes review. His was over in the UK. Uh, for those of you who don't know, there is a different one for each country. So I don't get to see those unless somebody sends them to me. And uh, one of our UK friends from uh, Don't Break the Oath podcast actually sends me those on a regular basis. So we appreciate those yes, guys. So absolutely. We're actually going to have those guys on with us in a couple of weeks. We're going to do a show on uh, Rendlesham Forest over in uh, the UK, which is. Probably the biggest UFO situation since Roswell. Uh, it's a pretty awesome deal. I think you guys will love the story. A lot of you probably already know the story. Of course, we'll put our twist on it. But we're going to have those guys on, and they're actually going to sit in with us for about a half hour or so, and we'll talk about the situation together. So thanks, Lee, for uh, Lee Scott from over in Liverpool, England. Oh, man. Thanks, Lee. That's great. Home with the Beatles. The Beatles. Oh, I love the Beatles. Oh, I can't do it. Okay, so you, so you said it right the first time I and did. then butchered Beatles. it the second time. Beatles. I don't know how I even did that. That was a, a fluke. 
anyways, thank you, Lee. We appreciate it. Uh, but he's been giving us one. A couple of other quick ones. Chanel Ryan. She's actually an actress out in L.A. You've probably seen her before. Uh, she's been on the... Uh, uh, some of the late night shows. She's been in a bunch of horror movies. She's actually had some experiences with the uh, Lindsay Borden house, and we're going to do a show on that on the second, I believe it is, a couple weeks from now. And she's actually going to sit in with us because she's uh, had an encounter with three or four spirits in the house, including a cat. So how can I not oh have gosh, her on? Gosh, that's so scary. Oh. Uh, let's give a couple quick ones out to uh, Donna Womble in Nashville, Tennessee. Heather Goss, she's a Kentucky girl, so we got to like her. Go by the, Cats! Yep, by the way, our Cats won today. Uh, the evil Louisville Cardinals did not win today, so we can all be happy about that. I also wanted to talk to, and I don't know her real name, but it's Ann O on Twitter, but she's actually from Tasmania, our first Tasmanian listener. Oh my gosh! I say that, but I really don't know that. She's from Australia. We have a lot of Australian listeners. But is just, that where Tasmania yeah, is? Tasmania is in Australia. I had no clue. And then we've got uh, Claire from England. We appreciate it, Claire. And then another young lady by the name of Bree. Uh, she is actually part of uh, uh, TennesseeHorror.com. If you get a chance, look them up if you're in the area. They organize a lot of events, and uh, they're connected with a lot of the uh, haunted attractions, Halloween time, but actual real haunted attractions as well. Okay, so we're not far from there, so we can definitely make the hookup on that. Yeah, actually, we, we talked about, uh, myself and her talked about it. She is right outside of where the Bell Witch Cave is. So it's possible we could work an event out with them as we talked about doing with Bobby Mackey's in Cincinnati. But if we go in a bat cave, I'll have, maybe have bat land in my hair. We're not going in a bat cave because oh. this is not Batman. That's where the bat cave is. We have nothing to do with that. Well, then why do they call it a bat cave? It's the Bell Witch Cave, not oh. a bat cave. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I totally made that up in my mind. Sorry. No, it's cute when she doesn't know the stories. I do know the stories. I don't know. You know what I was thinking about when Andy Griffith went into the cave with him and Barney and all that? Let me just explain this in case you don't know. Uh, everything that we do or say uh, evolves or revolves around Andy Griffith because um, that's all Tracy watches on television as if there are no other shows on. I love Barney. So... Just so you know, that's uh, Sorry, that's what, that's what that's my life. That's what I have to deal with. <laughs> Everything will be compared to an Andy Griffith episode. But you know what? If you ever watch Andy Griffith, they talk about how nice of a place Mayberry is. But every time you turn around, there's some kind of a crook there. There's somebody trying to swindle somebody, or there's always a murderer coming through town, or an escaped convict. So how hell of a nice of a place can this there be? There has never been one murderer come through that town. Well, they say they're not murderers. Get your story straight, Polly. Anyways. So much for Rascal Flatts talking about wanting to sip lemonade and shit like they're in. <laughs> Anyways, I wouldn't want to live in Mayberry. It's a high crime area. Well, speaking of high crime, <laughs> we got a couple of cool stories for you guys tonight. We're going to start off with H.H. Holmes. And, and this is one of my favorite all-time stories to talk about. I'm kind of excited about this one. Probably did more research on this one because there's it's truly a fascinating situation. Uh, we're also going to do a quick, uh, smaller story for our people up in Canada. This was actually in uh, Toronto, but there is a uh, Gibraltar Point Lighthouse, and it's got a, a really cool backstory. I can't wait to, to get into that. It was a lot of fun reading that. And we're going to top it off tonight with K-Town from Mysterious Radio. We did an interview a couple of weeks back, and I'm just now getting ready to air it, but she is fascinating her show mysterious radio is completely awesome 
and she's really been on a conspiracy kick lately. So she's had a couple of guests on that talk nothing about conspiracy. And I would advise anybody who's curious about this kind of stuff to check out uh, her episode. She had a, a gentleman by the name of Jim Fetzer on. And he, his whole thing is that 9-11 was set up by our government. It was a hoax. There were, there were no planes that crashed into the... Uh, uh, the actual Twin Towers, it was made to look that way, but it was explosions that nobody died at the Sandy Hook uh, elementary shooting. And on the surface, that stuff sounds like bullshit. Yeah, seriously. But if you actually listen to the guy and hear him out, you'd be surprised at how many fact-based things he has. You're going to be pissed. You're going to be <laughs> so mad by the time you get in here in this, even though because they tell you these facts, and if you think about it, you're like, Wow. But I'm telling you, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, I think it's, I want to say it's episode 29 or 30, but you'll see it, it says on there, no, nobody died at uh, Sandy Hook or no kids died at Sandy Hook. Uh, but I, I, I'd advise everybody to go listen to it. I think you guys will actually love this thing. So with that being said, you'll be able to hear a little bit about her at the end of the show. Now, let me ask you this. Before we get into the whole Henry Holmes thing, tell me if this makes me a bad husband or a bad person in general. So last night... It was late before we went to bed. I spent a lot of time researching, about five hours worth of research and doing an outline for this story. Tracy said she was going to come up and go to bed, but she was going to stay up and watch a little extra TV. And then I fell asleep, and next thing I know, I woke up at 8.30 this morning, and she was not in the bed. I was really tired, in my defense. So, you know how sometimes when you're laying in bed, you just kind of think of stuff, especially if you're tired? So it's 8.30, and I'm thinking, well, she didn't come to bed, so obviously she just fell asleep down there and didn't come to bed. And then in my head, I was like, well, hopefully nothing's wrong. Because, you know, I mean, she's up her in age. Anything could go wrong. <laughs> and <laughs> so I'm like, man, but I'm really tired. I really don't want to get out of bed. I'm so warm and comfy. So I talked myself out of you know, well, surely nothing went wrong. So she's just, you know, she's just sleeping in there. And then I thought, well, what if something was wrong? So then I immediately talked myself into, well, even if there was something wrong, I mean, it's not like I can do anything. I'm not a doctor. And it probably, if something happened, it probably happened during the night. So I'm already too late. There's no sense in rushing down there. I mean, seriously. And then I thought, well, I mean, the only way it would be of any benefit is if something was happening right there that second. What's the chances of that? So I talked myself out of it and just laid there until she eventually came upstairs like a half hour later. Okay. Not to mention that I've had open heart surgery. I'm a diabetic, so I could have been in a diabetic coma or anything like that. But he was tired, guys. He was tired. In my defense, I've had heart surgery way more recent, and I'm a diabetic, and I didn't hear her rushing up here to sleep with me in case something happened to me in the middle of the night. So oh, there, okay, true story. So therefore. Touche. All right, so let's talk a little bit about Henry Holmes. H.H. H. Holmes, as he more affectionately is known, this man, he is a case. I mean, He's when, a psycho. When I say case, I mean this is somebody that any psychologist or psychiatrist would have a career on just trying to analyze. So let's go with the background. That's what I like to do. H.H. Holmes was an alias, for those of you who don't know. He was actually born Herman Webster Mudgett. What the heck? I think right there explains the problem. If yeah. I had a name like Herman Mudgett, I think I, I would probably 
go on a killing spree myself. I mean, Herman's okay, but not much. It. Herman's okay only if you're a monster. <laughs> <laughs> so. Do, 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 do. Sorry, go ahead. I think that was a couple of beats off. I know, I know. I didn't. Anyways, so he was born May 16th, 1861. He was born to a wealthy family up in New Hampshire. His mother, though, was an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And his dad was one of these really strict disciplinarians. Now, despite all this, he did really well in school. He was super smart. Uh, matter of fact, he graduated high school at 16 years old and even went on to be a teacher for oh, a couple amazing. of years. Good. The problem was with him being as smart as he was and being from a rich family, a lot of the other kids liked to bully him. Um, one of the things that they did besides tease him on a regular basis, they found out he was scared of the doctor for whatever reason. And, you know, you're talking about late 1800s, doctor's offices were kind of crude. You could just come and go. It's not like, you know, a doctor's office today where you got to have appointments and all that. Yeah. So they actually took him to the doctor's office, took him inside. And back in these days, most of the doctors had a hanging skeleton. Sure. So he, there was a skeleton there. One of the kids, they kind of, I guess, banded together. They kind of forced him into the skeleton. And they took the skeleton's arms and took his fingers and put it around his face. Hmm. This freaked him out, obviously, um, but it had an effect on him that, that would change the rest of his life because not only did he kind of secretly enjoy it, but now he had a fascination with death. And uh, this, was, this comes basically from his own mouth. When uh, later years, he kind of wrote his own story out as he spent a year in prison. And this is all basically came from his words of saying that, that that's what started it. So from that point on, he starts taking animals that he would catch or just happen to find, and he was dissecting them, mutilating them. And, you know, doing some research on this, it's amazing uh, how many serial killers. Matter of fact, there was a doctor who actually did a study of 54 serial killers. It was amazing how many of them had tormenting and mutilating animals in their background. Mm. People like Jeffrey Dahmer, uh, John Wayne Gacy, this is something they did. Mm -hmm. And what happens is, unfortunately, and people talk about these people being insane. They're not insane. These people are usually very smart. They're very articulate. They just have a screw loose. There's a difference between being insane and being being a sociopath or a psychopath. And that's the cases with these serial killers. You will find that in most of them, the things that they did on animals was more like practice for them. You know, if if they practice bestiality, they usually rape their victims when they get older. If they strangle the animals, that's usually how they kill their victims when they get over. You mean it's, somebody did a horse or a goat or something? Um, I don't. I mean, I would hope it would be that rather than like a mouse or something because. <laughs> I mean, I I can pull that off, but most people probably couldn't. (laughs) So. Oh my goodness, that's sick. Don't bully. Bullying sucks butt, and then it gets in everybody all kinds of trouble. Just don't do it. So, you know, 18 years old, he marries uh, Clara Lovellens. Lovellens? I don't know how that's pronounced, but Mm -hmm. Lovellens. At 19 years old, he left for University of Michigan Medical School. Took her and the baby, or took her with him. He ended up having a baby, an infant son. Um, but it was in at the University of Michigan, who beat the University of Louisville today. Yeah. Go Big Blue. 
Anyways, it was at the University of Michigan that he came up with a plan that would actually fuel all of his future endeavors. Keep in mind, in the late 1800s, the insurance companies, as far as life insurance and, and I guess, you know, the other, there wasn't cars, so there wasn't right. car insurance. Could have been horse insurance or something. Yeah, horse and buggy. But life insurance was just really becoming a thing. So there was a, not the strict standards or any of this stuff. What he figured out how to do was these insurance scams. He would go to the insurance company. He would take a policy out on a person that didn't exist. Like I said, back then, you didn't have to take tests and you didn't have to prove you're um, related to somebody or any of that. So he just made up a person, said this is who it was. Well, because having access, you know, to medical school, they would have cadavers that they would actually, you know, dissect and work on. He would steal these cadavers. He would put acid or something to disfigure the face mm. so you couldn't tell. And then he would put them put it somewhere out in a position to where it looked like an accident happened. He would let wait till somebody found the body, and then he would take that information to the life insurance company and say, hey, this was Jane Doe, or whatever the name was, mm -hmm. that I've taken this policy out of. They're dead now, and I need to collect a policy. I mean, I, I mean, so back then, they couldn't even, I guess they couldn't prove who it was. Well, they, the only thing that they did back then to prove who people were because there was no fingerprints back at this oh, okay. time. They, they hadn't. They didn't. They didn't perfect fingerprinting until like 1904. Oh, okay. Just a random fact that I knew. Well, thank you. Not I written down. But they, what they would do is like take people's measurements, um, stretch your arms out. How how long are you from one fingertip to the other stretched out? How tall were you? And that's how they would do. So if somebody was roughly five seven or five eight, you know, and it was a male. I mean, that that's basically a, most of what they had to go on. Golly, that's terrible. But he got pretty good at this, and he did it over and over, and he stockpiled some money. The last one he did, he got $12,500 for. Good Lord. And I mean, and you're talking back in the 18, yeah. you know, like roughly being a millionaire, 1880s. It's not quite. Oh. Not like being a thousandaire or something. <laughs> a thousandaire. <laughs> but in 1880s, 12500 I mean, hell, that's a lot of money today. Yeah. I mean, I would kill half of my family members for 12500 today. You would not. I'd hire somebody to do it. No, I'd split, you wouldn't. I'd split the money. You wouldn't. Know. I would. I'd split the money with them. That's fair. No. So that's how he started doing this. So what he, he built up a nice little nest egg, and it's during this time that he came up with his little name, H. H. Holmes. Mm -hmm. Not to be confused with H. H. Gregg, was one is a uh, basically a psychopathic serial killer, and the other one has fine appliances. <laughs> because I keep thinking that's all I can think about is H. H. Gregg every time you say it. So he stockpiles this money, like we were saying, from these insurance scams. And he turns around and, and leaves to gallivant across the, the, the world, or I'd say the world, but the United States, because he went to New York for a while and he went to, uh, I think, uh, Indianapolis for a while. And his wife and, and little boy, he had an infant son, they just kind of left and went back to New Hampshire, which is a good thing for them because they never had to see him again. He went up to St. Paul, Minnesota for a while, uh, New York, for a couple of brief stops. It's about this time that he actually learned how to get stuff on credit and then not pay for it. So this was credit was, you know, something that was really starting to become popular back then. I mean, they'd always done, you know, stuff like this back in the day, but it was usually bartering or what have you. But he would buy stuff on credit, he would sell it, and then he would jump to town so they couldn't catch up with him. This was something that comes into play a little bit later. 
as uh, he, he really gets good at avoiding these creditors and uses that to help fund some of his future endeavors. It's about this time also that he meets and marries his second wife. Keep in mind, he's still married to the first wife. I guess he didn't feel the need for divorces and all that, but she was already gone, so he just went ahead with it. So he then moves to Chicago. By this time, he's 25 years old. This is, you know, 1885. He's posing as an inventor. have no idea why he's posing as an inventor when he's already a doctor. Why wouldn't you just want to do that? He meets this, this little girl named Myrtle Belknap. Now, the funny thing about that is, is she, he actually tried to swindle and kill her dad. And I guess that, you know, wasn't no big deal to her. Somehow or another, that didn't work. And uh, he went ahead and got away from her. She was, a, she was an, an heiress, to, you know, so he, was, he thought that would be a, a, a good way to <clears throat> make some money and move on. Okay, but, I mean, so he didn't succeed, did he? No, he didn't succeed. I don't think she knew that he didn't succeed. But didn't so, the dad know? Like, what the heck? He tried to kill him. Well, I think he knows he tried to swindle him. I don't necessarily know oh, he tried to kill okay. him. But it's then when he moves, you know, in uh, closer uh, to the city that he meets at his first victim that we know for a fact that he killed. That was E.S. Houghton. She actually, her and her husband owned a drugstore. And, you know, when, when he first met her, you know, he's got this medical background and everything, so she had no problem hiring him. Yeah. And he comes in as an assistant manager. It wasn't long, though, before it, it looked like he was the manager. He was kind of running stuff. Now, when he first met the Holtons, her, Mr. Houghton was dying of cancer. And uh, he did die a sudden death uh, from the cancer, people assume. But, you know, looking back, it's possible he could have had something to do with this. Uh-huh. Around the time... I guess right before Mr. Houghton passed away, he had decided he wanted to buy into the drugstore. Mrs. Houghton had no problem doing that, and he was making payments to her. Uh-huh. As soon as Mr. Houghton died, the payments stopped. Right. Yeah. So apparently he just decided, you know, he wasn't going to pay her any more payments. And then suddenly, guess what happened to Miss Houghton? She disappeared. And the police came and questioned uh, him about it, Holmes about it, and, and he said, well, she went out west. California to live with family now that Mr. You know, Houghton was there. There was nothing to keep her there. And uh, conveniently, she had sold him the drugstore and signed off on it right before she left. Oh, gosh. What a turd. <laughs> so, uh, but he did, he later admit to actually killing her. This guy was amazing because he never had enough money. He was always trying to swindle somebody out of something. He, he matter of fact, he sold mineral water that was supposed to cure everything. It was basically snake oil. I like that guy on Andy Griffith at that time. Wait. Was, snake oil? It's not really oil. Snake oil is a made-up term, babe. Oh. Snake oil is just given to anything that's fake. That okay, but I say, thought water and oil is totally different things. Right. So. They don't mix. Well, yeah. Unless just, you're making a salad. Oh, yeah. Anyways, so he, uh, he was selling this mineral water saying that it had all these benefits, and it was basically tap water from right there in the drugstore. Oh, Jesus. That, I mean, that's the kind of guy that he was. So now the guy's 29 years old. He's wealthy beyond his wildest dreams. And still, what does he do? He goes up to Indianapolis to do an insurance scam. He, he comes back. He's got all this extra money. He sees that there's a lot right across the street from the drugstore. And he wants to buy it because he's got a unique plan. He wants to build a hotel like none other. Keep in mind, in Chicago, this was right after the Great Chicago Fire. 
So they were rebuilding. There was a lot, lots of room to be able to refill. Oh, so he got in right at a great time then. Right, and and the thing of it is, it, it's even the timing's even better because the uh, uh, World Fair was actually coming right around. I think it was it's coming like two years later. Was going to oh, be yeah. coming to Chicago. Oh, cool. Then he'd have all that hotel for people to sit and, I mean, to check into. Right. Block. Like, you know, like the, what is it, the Roach Motel. Yeah. People check in, but they don't check out. Ah, that's Hotel California. Either way. They were, uh, so he start, He wants to start building this thing. Now, this thing is going to be huge, and he's even got a name for it. He's calling it the Castle. Go figure. It's going to have shops and a new pharmacy on the bottom. He's going to move that over. It's also going to have... Uh, a candy store and a jewelry shop. Now, on the top two floors, the third floor was going to have his office, but the second floor and some of the third floor was really bizarrely done. I mean, keep in mind, I mentioned this last week, but if you've ever seen the the TV show um, American Horror Story where they did the hotel, yeah, that whole concept was based on this man's hotel. Here. Because what you've got is you've got many rooms that are windowless. Most of them were airtight if they needed them to be. Most of well, all of them were soundproof because he wanted to know that if you were actually a a tenant or a hotel guest staying in one room, you could have somebody starving to death right next to you and you wouldn't know because the rooms were soundproof. He had rooms that were fitted with gas lines. He even had a bank vault installed. And just like we were talking about with the avoiding creditors, he had the bank vault brought in, assembled, and then he built the part of the hotel around it. And then he didn't pay for it. And when they came in to repossess it, he told them if they damaged any part of his hotel, he was going to basically sue their pants off. That's the kind of guy this, this man was. He, even though he had the money, he chose not to do it. Now, he also made these plans himself. He's no architect, but he told each builder what he wanted to do. Now, he would bring people in. They would work there a week to two weeks. As soon as they would start asking questions about, well, why is this wall leading nowhere? Why do you have steps leading up to nowhere? Why do you have a chute that, leads, that would lead straight to the basement? Why do you have trap doors? He would then fire that group. And bring in a new group. And then he would find a way not to pay them for the work they'd done, claiming that they did shoddy work. work. So back to to some of the, the craziness of how this house was built. So you had the, the bank vault, right? Now the bank vault had iron plates all the way around it, and it had a trap door in the bottom that led straight to the basement. It also was just big enough for one person, basically. Then... You've got hallways with strange angles. You had doors that would that would open to brick walls, stairways that, that led nowhere, and some some rooms you could only enter from a trap door from the top, and then of course there was a chute that led straight to the basement. That sounds like that one house we were talking yeah, about. Yeah, it's a lot like the Winchester house. The difference is the Winchester house was just built just to be built. Yeah. This house was built for a purpose. Yeah. If his purpose was he had this sick fantasy of killing people and torturing people, and he wanted to be able to do it whenever he wanted to, and that was kind of his whole thing. So this thing was finally complete in 1892. It took up half of a city block. It wow. was huge. He would advertise 
lodging in, in the in the papers. He would advertise that it was for like women, uh, single women that just needed a place to live. That's kind of the cool thing. I tried to do that myself, I would guess. And then he also would advertise in for uh, the World's Fair coming. That and that was actually called the Columbian Expo, by the way. I keep calling it the World Fair, but and it, and that's what it was. But it was the Columbian Expo. Expo was what that proper name for it was. And there was actually, I'll tell you what's cool about that one. That's actually the World's Fair where electricity was officially released or introduced to the world. And a fair? Yeah, they they lit up the whole fair with electric light, and that was the first time that it was really introduced that that could be done. Gone. That's bizarre. Yep. A little bit. And that's, you know, that was one of the things. They also had um, a couple of other little tidbits of information nobody cares about. Uh-huh. There was also emphasis on quick breakfast. For example, Aunt Jemima's pancake mix, Quaker oats, and cream of wheat were all introduced at this World's Fair. Get out of here. So nobody had any of that stuff for that. And it was oh, gonna, man. That's going to last like six months. So it was going to be right there in Chicago for six months. Oh, cool. So now that the hotel is open for business... H.H. Holmes technically is in business for what he was wanting to do all along. So let's talk about some of the some of the victims and how he got them there. Now we talked about he would place ads. He would do like they were a boarding home for single young women, but he would also run ads saying that he was looking for a wife. He also would run little ads similar like Craigslist of seeking people to be employees. So one of the first people to actually check into the house or, or the uh, hotel uh, was a young lady by the name of Pansy Lee. Now, she was a widow. She'd been traveling all around the world. She said she wanted to settle in Chicago. She comes in, and she checks in, and she somehow lets loose that she's got $4,000 that she keeps in her, I guess, the, a shallow, uh, fake door of uh, her suitcase. And... Of course, Henry Holmes decides that, you know, he would be very nice and store that in his vault if she would like, which she declined, and then subsequently she vanished later that night. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so uh, I'm sure he got his hands on that $4,000 anyway. Now, employees would come there, and it looked like a good job for them. They were happy uh, to get the employment, but he knew the life insurance business pretty well, so guess what he required all employees to have? Life insurance. $5,000 life insurance policy with him as the beneficiary. He also told them to take out any money they had in the banks and bring that with them. It would be like a startup cost. Okay, these people are, are just stupid. And I this is understand. the 1880s, so people were a lot more willing to listen to people yeah. and, and, and a lot more naive back then and trusting. Um, so he would do that, and then these a lot of these workers would just disappear. And he would go collect the life insurance policy. Now, there was a young lady by the name of Jenny Thompson. She was a 17-year-old. She was supposed to be uh, traveling up to New York, I think it was. She comes in, and uh, it's his type of woman. She's blonde hair, blue eyes, pretty little girl. And, you know, he was kind of a ladies' man anyway. All the women just loved him for whatever reason. And, you know, she's telling her about how her parents have no clue where she's at and she's supposed to be going to New York and you know she stopped there and she now that she's got a good job she might just stay there and she can't wait to tell her parents so he ushers her up to her room and she was never seen again women back then were dumb <laughs> I'm just saying that's just so dumb learn how to keep a secret well 
you know, there's there's tons of victims in this that we do know about. So let's talk about another setup. So Ned Connor and his wife Julia and uh, her daughter. Actually, her, her daughter's name was Pearl, by the way. Oh, I love you, mommy. And they they show up at the hotel. Ned needs a job, and he knows how to do jewelry and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. he was more than happy to hire him. Uh, it seems like though that Henry took a liking to his wife Julia. Who, by the way, was a taller woman. She was about six foot tall. Oh, good. And he kind of took a liking to it, which which Ned just kind of, you know, turned a blind eye to. He was just happy to have a good job. Yeah. Until Julia ended up pregnant. Oh. <gasps> yeah. He so, didn't. Yeah. And about this time, Henry had actually, Henry Holmes had actually fired his bookkeeper and gave that job to Julia. And now all of a sudden she's pregnant. Uh, Ned's like, I can take a hint, and he leaves her and the daughter Pearl, and he files for divorce. He's gone. Mm-hmm. Well, the problem is at this point in time, Julia knew a lot. I don't know, like his business. I don't uh, the business. I don't know how much she knew about the killings and all that stuff, but um, he had to find a way to fix this problem, and and she wants to get married now. So she's like, I want to get married. So Henry tells her, okay, I'll marry you under one condition. You have to have an abortion. What and, a jerkhead. And, you know, of course, he's a doctor. So she had him take Pearl, the daughter, up to her room, put her to sleep, and then they would go downstairs to the basement. And in the basement, he had a makeshift operating room. He goes down there, and apparently he kills her with chloroform. And... Then the daughter disappeared, too. Oh, my gosh. So he killed both of them. I guess it's beginning to be ridiculous. Oh, did I mention that before this that he actually took out a life insurance policy on her? No, you did not. <laughs> Go figure. Did she? Did I, I mean, did she know that? No, I, I mean, I don't know if she knew it or not. I wonder, died. yeah. There's just a lot of bad clues hanging around that this guy is sketchy. Well, so here's the, here's the funny part. So... This gentleman that by the name of, of Charles Chappelle, he did a lot of odd jobs for him, and he had one skill that H.H. H. Holmes really liked about him. He knew how to put skeletons together. Okay. You can could, you could see how that could come in handy. Yeah. So what happens is one night he brings him in, and he says, hey, I need you to do something for me. I've got a body... Uh, that I need you to strip the flesh off of oh. and make a skeleton and put it all together. Oh, my gosh. And so he comes in. He sees the body had already been skinned. He don't think anything of it. He's like, well, I mean, the guy's a doctor. I'm sure he was in an autopsy or something yeah. like that. He paid him $36, $36 to take this body, strip the rest of the flesh off of it, and make a skeleton that they then, then sold to a, a, a Dr. Palsy. Mm-hmm. And, and Dr. Pauza used to always sit and look at that skeleton and just be amazed the fact that it was a female skeleton six feet tall. Oh, my gosh. See, this is why I can't eat meat off a bone. It has nothing to do with it. Ribs, maybe. Never. It's so gross. And that was back in 1891. But, you know, so obviously a six-foot-tall woman. Yeah, that kind of stands out a little yeah. bit. Well, I mean, that, how do they, but how do they do that? How do they do that? How do they skin them? I mean, honestly, I've seen some of them skeletons, and they were like, there was like not, uh, nothing on them. 
Like, do they put acid on them to melt the skin There's off? Couple, you can do acid. You can do uh, quick lime. And he used both of those methods. Oh, and we'll get into gosh. that a little bit later. So then let's talk about a young lady that he meets that had a strong fancy for him by the name of Minnie Williams. Met her in Boston. You know, he comes back to Chicago and he's still sending her love letters and everything, even though he's married to, you know, yeah. two women at this time. And in 1893, he offered her a job as a stenographer, so she moved down here. She had this nice little piece of land in Fort Worth, Texas, uh-huh. to where he would really like to build another murder castle at. Uh-huh. You know, because, you know, one's not enough. Well, so... Uh. You know, it's, not, it's, you know, it's, sure, you can murder and torture people in, you know, Chicago, oh, but yeah. it's just not the same as doing it in Texas, because yeah. everything's bigger yeah. in Texas. Oh, yeah, you got to share the love. And since we got so many great Texas listeners... You know, Absolutely. Um, so they come over there... And now once he has many on the property, you know, he wants to see what he can do about getting this land. He has her invite her sister over. Mm-hmm. He signs, she, he gets her to sign the property over to uh, Alexander Bond, which is another one of his aliases. And she eventually signed the, uh, the deed over to a gentleman by the name of Peitzel, which we're going to get into in a little more. But that's how he got it. He invites her sister up for a visit. And while she's up, they, they're having a good time. But he says, hey, why don't you go to the bank vault and get some papers out for me? So she goes over to the vault, to which he closes the vault door and then proceeds to watch her suffocate. See, some of these, some of these rooms that he had, he had some that had gas jets. He had some that had blow torches mm. in them. He had some that were, he had a hanging room where he would just hang people and then, like I said, a lot of them just had the gas jets. So what he would do was he would put people in these rooms, but he would have a hole where he could watch or he could hear them suffocate. He got that. he got off on on hearing the people suffer and suffocate as they were, you know, just trying to live. So I told you about a, Mr. Peitzel by the name of Benjamin Peitzel is his full name, and that's who we want to get into now because Benjamin Peitzel. Is a unique character that's really going to play into the rest of the story. Now, he was, I guess you could say, a right-hand man um, to H.H. Holmes. He kind of knew everything that was going on and and turned a blind eye. You know, it was him and his wife and five kids, and they were um, struggling before they they met H.H. Holmes, and they actually had a pretty decent life. But I guess if you're able to turn a blind eye to people getting murdered and tortured, um, it can be a good, good situation for you. But... You're going to learn that you can't trust anybody because, you know, him and Peitzel would decide it, especially after the World Fair ended, there really wasn't a whole lot for him to do. I mean, this was how he was getting all of his murder victims. You know, I mean, when you would send people out, when he would send Peitzel's wife and kids out to the the World's Fair and get people to come back, you know, tell them, hey, we got a nice warm bed for you to sleep in, comfy. And, you know, now that the fair is over, there's really not much to do. So what he decided they were going to do was just travel around the country and do insurance scams. Well, it's funny. They go to Texas and they try to do a horse scam. I guess it was a horse theft deal or something like Mm -hmm. that. And he got arrested for it. Out of all these crimes that he did, he gets arrested for a horse stealing scam or whatever the scam was. I really didn't find any details. So he's in jail. And he, he meets this guy named Marion Hedspeth. He was uh, uh, just a prisoner. He tells him that about an insurance scam that he's got 
to where he had tried to fake his own death and collect the insurance money, and that failed. So he tells Hedgebeth that he's got his buddy, Benjamin Peitzel, and he thinks that he's going to have him set up to where he's going to use a cadaver, disfigure it, say it's Benjamin Peitzel, mm -hmm. and then during that time, he would collect the insurance money. Well, this uh, Hedgebeth guy says... Man, that sounds like a great idea. I've got an attorney that I think will help you. So H.H. Holmes agreed that if he would hook him up with his attorney, that he would pay Hedgebeth 500 bucks. Well, the problem is he didn't pay Hedgebeth the 500 bucks. What did you do, kill him? Well, actually, none of this stuff actually worked out like they were supposed to. So he tells, let's H.H. Holmes tells uh, Peitzel's wife, what the deal is going to be. He's going to have Peitzel, a body set up, claim it's Peitzel so they can collect the money. Yeah. So they go and uh, they go up to Boston, I believe it was, and instead of doing it like that, he kills Peitzel himself. He, he throws benzene on him, he sets him on fire, he disfigures his body, mm. and he collects the insurance money. He has to have Peitzel's wife come collect the money. She collects it. He ends up swindling her out of it, but he never spent sent any of this money back to Hedgebeth. So he tells the authorities, and the authorities actually get the Pinkerton uh, investigative group, which you've probably heard of the Pinkerton uh, security and stuff like that today. That's where all this started. They were like the people that could hunt anybody down. Uh -huh. So they start looking for him. And they're looking for him basically because... Uh, they know he's faked this insurance. They don't know anything that's going on in the castle. So what H.H. H. Holmes does is he goes to Peitzel's wife. And he says, look, here's what we need to do. You've got five kids. I'll take the three oldest ones with me. You can, you know, leave the two youngest ones for whatever. Uh, relatives or, or what have you. Mm -hmm. Because we don't need to travel together. And we definitely don't need you traveling with all these kids. So they start traveling, like, back and forth all over the Midwest. Indianapolis, uh, uh up around Boston and what have you. They're just basically going back and forth on the run. Well, a lot of times, her kids, the the ones that H.H. H. Holmes had, and her were sometimes only like an hour apart. But she never knew it because they were going in different locations. What ended up happening is he took the two, there was two older girls and, a, and an older boy. I want to say they were all probably 10 to 14 years old, the three of them. And... What he ended up doing is, is up in the uh, Toronto area of Canada, he took the two girls in a house. He put them in a chest, like a trunk. He cut a hole in the top, and he ran gas into it, and he basically suffocated them. Then he took and buried both of the girls in a shallow grave. One of them had a club foot, and he cut it off because he didn't want it to be. He thought that would be a... Like a... I was going to say a dead giveaway, but that's really a bad term. <laughs> you he, mean like they would, could identify her? It would have been very easy to identify her. And then what ended up happening with the uh, the boy, he killed him in Indianapolis. And this is how they ended up tracking him down. Uh, he went and had a knife sharpened at a machine shop. So they used found records for that. Pinkerton did. And then he also used some chemicals uh, to kill the boy with, and they tracked him down by that. So they end up arresting him, and they search these homes, 
and they found the two little girls in the shallow grave, and they found the little boy, remnants of him, teeth and bones in the fireplace. Aww. And uh, Henry Holmes had said that he had actually cut him up into pieces and tried to burn him. Oh, he admitted that to yeah. the cops or yeah. whatever? Yeah, he admitted it. So he spent a year in jail, and the whole time that he was in jail, he was writing his own little memoirs, um, but this also gave the cops time to start checking the murder hotel. Yeah. A lot of this can been to, to be because Patrick Quinlan was the uh, caretaker uh, for hell, years. At the hotel? Yeah, at the hotel. And he told the cops that when they started asking, they told the cops that he would clean the bottom floor, but he was never allowed to clean the second and third floor. So they thought that was obviously weird. Yeah. Um, he went on to say afterwards that he felt guilty because all this was going on underneath his own nose, even though he didn't know anything about it. And actually, uh, nine years later, or actually some years later, I don't know exactly the, the timeline on it, he actually committed suicide. The caretaker and, did? Yeah, and in his suicide note, he just put that he couldn't live with knowing everything that Aww. went on and, and wished he could have done something different. Yeah. So in 1894, of course, Henry Holmes was arrested in Boston. And... Um, so they should have mutilated him like he's done all his other people's. He eventually confessed to 27 murders. And he only, he only confessed to 27 because somebody basically come in and said they would pay him if, if he would confess and, and write a book. So that's the only reason he was confessing. Oh, my gosh. I wonder how many it was. Well, that's a good question. So what happens is the police go through and they start doing a thorough investigation. That's when they start finding all these rooms. Mm -hmm. And that's when they start uh, looking in the basement. Now, they found out that the basement had been expanded out even underneath the streets, even further than what the actual uh, building was. And he had to, do the, uh, had to do that because he had so much equipment down there. This is what they found, much to their surprise. He had a dissection table that was still loaded with blood. I mean, yeah. it was covered. He had jars of poison all over the place. He had a large box that had multiple female skeletons in it. He had a, I guess you could call it a stretching table. Um, you've, you've all seen these things like the medieval things where they yeah. would tie people's hands and legs and then they would crank it and it would actually oh just pull. Gosh. And that thing was designed just to see how far your body could stretch before it pulled apart. Oh, God. Uh, there was also bones of a child in a pit. There was a, a bloody dress that was found in the stove that still, you know, was still uh, intact. And then when I talked to Ned from back earlier in our story, he did confirm that that was his wife, Julia. Mm -hmm. I hate they, him. They dug up uh, the ground. They found several more skeletons. They also found um, uh, like a pit of acid and a couple of quick lime pits that were designed strictly to get these these bones and stuff stripped. Because he would do what he would strip these skeletons down to these people he killed, and he would sell them and make money off of them to the... Uh, the local uh, doctor's offices or the medical school. Wow. Yeah, it was uh, it was horrible. But you know, there were there were actually like little jail cells down there with the mm -hmm. uh, um, you know the shackles and stuff for people to be held up. I mean, that's that's what this man did. He would he would starve people to death. It was all about the torture for him. He also had two furnaces that basically he would use for uh, uh, what do you call that when people. Crematorium. It was basically a homemade crematorium. Yeah. He claims that the reason he had the furnaces down there because he was a big fan of, of uh, blowing glass 
which, you know, that's obviously not what it was for. He, uh, he was just a sick man. I mean, I don't know what else to say. He, he had no remorse for anything he did, and that was never proven more than when he went on trial. So he goes on trial, and uh, Benjamin Peitzel's wife, keep in mind, he murdered three of her kids and her husband. She comes in, and she gives her testimony, and literally everybody, when I say this, I don't mean like, well, just most of you, everybody in the courtroom, including the judge, was crying. Mm-hmm. All the jury members, everybody except for H.H. H. Holmes. He showed no sign of emotion whatsoever. Wow. He was proven, you know, proven to be guilty. They only actually found nine bodies that they could convince it was him. He admitted to 27. He changed that several times, uh, even as he was getting ready to be, you know, hanged. He actually said that he only to kill two people. So, I mean, nobody really knows how many people he killed. Uh, the reports from the uh, Chicago World's Fair that there was over 50 missing persons reports. No telling how many of those were yeah. actually his victims. Uh, during the time that he left medical school and roamed around for a couple of years before yeah. he got to Chicago, there's no telling of anybody he killed along those ways. The only people that we really know are the ones that you know they were able to pin. A lot of people guessed that the death toll could be up to 200 people. Gosh, and then you can really even identify most of them. Right, and that's the whole point. Aww. So May 7th, 1896, they actually set up for the hanging they set him up over the over top of the drawer the uh, trap door when the drawer or door trap door opened his neck snapped but it didn't kill him good he actually suffered good. and twitched for about 20 minutes before he actually was was uh called you know dead and the whole funny thing about this whole this whole bit is the ironic part is he turned around and said that he wanted to be buried 10 foot down rather than the six foot and he wanted his coffin to be filled with cement because he was afraid of somebody digging his body up and trying to examine him. He's stupid. I'm going to punch him in his face. But I can't. No, he's been dead for he's a long time. Been dead. And if you did punch him in the face, you'd have to punch through a lot of concrete apparently. That's true. Why, why should he get what the hell he wants? Yeah, it's amazing. The the whole story about H. H. Holmes, you know, is he a psychopath? Was he evil? I mean, I think all that goes without saying. He said himself in a confession and, and before he died, this is the word straight from the man. He said, I was born with the devil in me. I couldn't help the fact that I was a murderer. No more than a poet can help the inspiration to sing. I was born with the evil one standing beside me as my sponsor, beside my bed, when I was ushered into the world, and he has been with me ever since. Man, that is a sad, sad life. So that is our story on Mr. H. H. Holmes. Hope you enjoyed that because, like I said, he's a true nutcase, and trust me, we didn't touch the surface. We could have done two hours on him and uh, probably still missed a ton of details. But that's our story on H. H. I almost said H.H. Gregg. (laughs) (laughs) I've been waiting for you to say it the whole show. (laughs) That's our story on H.H. Best Buy. (laughs) So we want to get into another story. This one's a little, I'm not even going to say it's any nicer because it's really not. But we're going to jump into this one. Um, I want to talk about 
the Gibraltar Point Lighthouse. And I know Tracy is completely unfamiliar with this story. Um, so this is all going to be new to her. But let's go back. We're going to bounce a little bit. This isn't a long story, but it's a fun story. Kind of. I was going to say, how's it fun? Uh, in 1895, there was a gentleman by the name of Greg Dernan. I want to make sure I say that right. Now, like I said, this is in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And uh, he loved the solitude and, and he loved being uh, a lighthouse keeper. And it, the thing about being a lighthouse keeper is you are by yourself most of the time and for long periods of time. So it's not uncommon to hear stories about lighthouse keepers kind of going crazy just from being by themselves all the time. But that's not one of these cases. So what happens is he, he starts hearing these footsteps and you know it's some one of these windy staircases mm -hmm. and he'd go down to check and there was never anything there well one day he looked down and he saw a bloody man with no arms and he you know he was looking he was at the top of the lighthouse looking down at the ground so he runs mm -hmm. all the way down and there's nobody there well later in the day he's on top and he turns around and there's the guy right there the same guy right in front of him mm -hmm. it's obvious he's a ghost and he sees this guy all the time and he's like what in the hell is going on with this guy and one day he looks down and there's the guy just standing at the base of the lighthouse and it, he goes down there and the guy just kind of runs off a little bit but then he turns back and looks looks at he's him following yeah him and, that, and it's obvious that's what he wanted him to do is he wanted him to follow him well he goes down and he, he goes a little bit away from the white lighthouse and he can see that this ghost is trying to communicate but he doesn't know why so he just you know says, I'm going to go back and start looking at some of the old uh, journals and, uh, you know, whatever the, the books were where they just keep all this stuff, uh, the logs. And he starts looking through all of them, and he sees that from 1809 to 1815, there was a guy named John Raidmuller who was a lighthouse keeper, and he obviously loved his job. You could tell by the post that he was putting in there. And he starts doing some digging, and he finds out that this guy just mysteriously disappeared. So nobody knows what happened to him. Huh. Or, you know, they didn't think they knew what happened to him. And what happened was supposedly these two guys, this was in York, and these two guys that were soldiers or thugs, it depends on the story you, t you, you listen to, but they, they came up to him because John Mueller used to come across the border to the U.S., and he would get beer, and he would get whiskey, and um, he would kind of, uh, what do you call it, bootleg it. Uh -huh. So he had a lot of bootleg whiskey and stuff like that. And I don't know if he was making too much money off of it, and maybe these were like almost like mobsters back in the day, or if it was actual soldiers. But he decided not to give them any liquor. They got pissed. They beat the hell out of him. They took an axe, and they cut his arms off. Oh, my gosh. I thought he was going to say he fell in the ocean, and a shark ate him. No. No, much better. So they cut his arms off. He died. So then they had to do something with him. So they cut him up in small pieces. They put him in a burlap sack and they took him out further out on the property and they buried him. Well, after seeing this, the guy's like, well, I'm seeing this body or this, this ghost. And he keeps leading me out this way. So he, he goes out there to where this ghost leads him. Mm -hmm. And he starts digging and he starts digging and he finds a whiskey bottle. That's one of the old bootlegger type whiskey bottles. Well, mm -hmm. then he keeps digging further and further, and then he finds a body, mm -hmm. uh, you know, skull and yeah. just bones. But he finds these bones 
in a burlap sack. Ah. So that's kind of a... That's, that's very cool. Yep. That's kind of the cool story of it, but that's that's the story. And they say that he still haunts the, the lighthouse. There's even now on the lighthouse on the outside, there's like a plaque uh-huh. that it, that actually even mentions the fact of uh, uh, John Regmuller. They don't... It, some people say that that's just a myth. That never happened. And But everybody admits that they did find a body uh-huh. out there on that property after he disappeared. So, wow. But that's the story behind it. I guess they never caught whoever did it then. Well, supposedly they did catch the two guys who did it, and they spent time in jail. But they got out on parole because they didn't have a body to prove it. Oh, and the body wow. was found way after. Dang. So it was like an 80-year difference since from the time they found the body. Oh, my God. 80 years? So, guys, I 80 hope years? 80 years. Well, remember, it was like 19 or 1890-something, oh. and this was he disappeared in like 1915. Oh, okay. Can I wrap this up now? Yeah, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, I'm just amazed, <laughs> I guess. Guys, we appreciate you listening to us again. Once again, The uh, we had a great week of listens. It just gets better every week. We're still in amazement from you guys, but you probably get tired of us gushing on you, so we'll just do it a little bit this week. But we love you guys. Uh, thank you so much for the donations. I hope the new microphone sounds good. We have a new mixer and a new microphone that will be in tomorrow. So starting next week, we'll have the whole new setup with two mics. Everything should sound 10 times better. And 10 times twangier. Yeah. Uh, so there's negatives, too. Um, <laughs> we uh, want to say thank you for the donations that we've got. We've gotten a bunch of T-shirt sales. Sent our first T-shirt to Sweden today and our first T-shirt to the United Kingdom a couple of days ago. You guys rock. We appreciate yeah, you ordering all this stuff. Yes, thank you so much. And like I said, we, we do have a donation page on our website, hillbillyhorrorstores.com. If you feel the need to throw a few bucks our way because you like what we do and we appreciate the fact that we're upgrading our equipment and what have you, it all goes towards equipment. We put all of it back into the show. We appreciate you guys. Do. Now what we're going to do, we're not going to close the show out just yet. Uh, we got an interview with K-Town from Mysterious Radio. You guys are going to love this. She is an absolute sweetheart, and uh, I think you're going to like the show. So Mysterious Radio, look for it the same place you get our podcast at, and uh, take a listen to this and see what you think. All right, everybody, welcome back to Hillbilly Horror Stories, and I'm excited tonight because I have a special guest. Um, I've really been lucky to be able to interview some great podcast hosts over the last couple of weeks, and this is no exception. Joining me tonight, I have K-Town. She's the host of Mysterious Radio, and if you guys haven't listened to this yet, this is one you want to listen to. This is one of my favorites. It's very in-depth. It's very detailed about a lot of subjects that are just truly fascinating. So, K-Town, welcome so much to the show. Hey, I appreciate your uh, invitation. I'll tell you that. It's oh. very nice of you to do that for me. Oh, it's no problem at all. What I want to do, first of all, is I want to thank you for your service because you have been in the military, and uh, I'm one of those people that greatly appreciate everything that's done by our military, so thank you so much for your service. No problem. I love hearing that, and thank you for recognizing that and extending a a thank you. It means a lot. Thank you. Well, not enough people do it, and uh, I try to always reach out. Anytime I see somebody in the, in the military or if they've got a hat on that, that shows they were in the military at some point in time, I always stop them. Same thing with police and uh, fire department. And, uh, you know, these people risk their lives for us on a, on a regular basis, and I think that's the least we can do is thank them. So no Absolutely. problem. So let's do this. Let's talk about a little bit about your show, 
Mysterious Radio. Now, originally you started off, you had a host, uh, at least some of the time, uh, Tim Tanner, I believe was his name, and uh, he's recently had a baby and left the show, so uh, now it's pretty much all you, which uh, I like the sound of it. It's a, it's a great sounding show, and you do a, a very good job of bringing the guest on and letting them tell their sides of the story uh, pretty much uninterrupted, which is one of the things that sets your show apart. Um, tell us a little bit about Mysterious Radio, what you want to do on the show, and how you got started. Well, um, I got started because I was already involved in podcasting, but I've always been a huge fan of the paranormal. Now, a lot of shows that I've heard and that I love listening to, I noticed that the guests are often interrupted and to me sometimes unnecessarily. So the way that I do my show is I do it the way that I would want to hear it. And so far it's been uh, met with uh, gratitude from many people and I let it run about an hour and you're right. I did start off doing it um, with a, uh, with a host um, and then uh, Tim, Tim's great. Actually, I started with two, to be honest with you. But um, one host had to leave early. OK, she only did maybe two or three shows. And then I found Tim. Tim's great. And but Tim's extremely busy. You're right. He had a baby. And so he couldn't do the show anymore. But the majority of the of my shows have been hosted by myself. So uh, and I'm going to continue to do it that way. But um, my goal is to bring on the foremost experts in every aspect of fringe, if you will, and then allow them to talk and go in depth with their research and their findings. And then I don't know about you, but sometimes (laughs) I do get emails or people wanting me to challenge my guests on their views. Um, because they feel like they were being untruthful or they didn't agree with something that they said. And that's not why I created my show. You know, I don't have a, I'm not, I'm not a, a skeptic per se. I don't believe everything they say, but um, what I do is I leave it up to my guests to lay it all out. And then myself and my listeners will make up their own mind, whether or not they believe them. So, um, you know, like um, so far, I've been very, very lucky to get people that are gracious enough to come on the show and, um, you know, be open to whatever time I'm I'm willing to give them. So I appreciate people like you. I mean, you have reached out and said, hey, I love your show. And then you've extended an offer to come onto your show and talk about that. So I appreciate it. But it's been a lot of fun. And I hope that this show will get as big as it possibly can. And, um, you know, people can go to my website, mysteriousradio.com and, uh, check it out. Yeah, it, it really is. Like I said, it, it is a unique show in the fact of, like you said, there, there's not a lot of challenging the guest and you've got the same philosophy that I do. You know, I don't necessarily believe everything that I sit up here and say, but I'm going to do the research and I'm going to give you what's out there. And it's up for you to decide whether you believe or not believe. Right. That's exactly right. I mean, you are, you know, we are our own people, right? I mean, you don't need to be influenced by my input. I mean, what I have to say and my thoughts about what they are saying are really immaterial, to be honest with you. So that's why I don't put my thoughts and my feelings uh, out there because I don't want to influence my listener. I don't want to do that. 
I, I do put it out there and I want and I do. I, I'll tell you what I do this. I tell them, listen, I want you to feel free to go off on a tangent because I, what I want them to do is is go back in their mind while they're telling uh, telling me about their research and say say things that they have not said on another show, per se. But, um, you know, it's 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 not appreciated when you interrupt a guest. And and, I, you know, I, I know that you said that you have found that to be the case as well. But I, I can't stand it. And I'm, I'm definitely not going to challenge anything they say, because honestly, uh, what foot do I have to stand on when I haven't been out there doing the research? So I don't understand other hosts doing that as well. You know, I don't understand that logic, to be honest with you. Well, I think you know how it goes. 50% of your audience feels one way and 50% of the audience feels another way. So for, for everybody that says, hey, you should step up and challenge, you've got that other person saying, just let them talk. So, I mean, that's just that's just the, the environment we live in and, and it's in all walks of life and no matter what you're talking about. All right. You're exactly right. And you know what? Um, I tried to put it this way to one gentleman. It's very nice. Oh, believe me, he's been a, a great supporter of the show, but he wanted to know whether or not I believe, you know, everything that my guests tell me. But I tell him like this. You have a lot of these guests who are, you know, they have stellar careers. They, you know, have uh, done done it all concerning their chosen field, been very, very well respected until the moment they decide uh, to delve into these fringe subjects. Right. And then all of a sudden the world's turned their back on them. They've been ridiculed. They've, you know, basically been put out of a job, um, lives threatened, whatever, in order to be able to bring us the truth about these things. So who in God's name would do that to themselves? So I also told him to try and think of it like the justice system, our justice system. What do they look for? They look for a credible witness. And many times it's, it, it depends on whether or not someone is going to be set free or someone is, you know, put in jail for the rest of their life or, uh, put to death or whatever, what do they look for? They look for a witness that is credible. So these people who ha- who have uh, doctorates and, you know, like I said, you know, just immense careers and done so much in their life. If they would, if they're coming out and saying these things and they have otherwise had all these, you know, um, um, things to their credit, all these accolades and and everything to their credit and then all of a sudden they come out with this friend stuff and then people want to say um i don't believe them they're lying i mean (laughs) really and honestly you have to look at the person that's saying it right you have to look at whether or not this is someone who is credible and a lot of these people are absolutely credible so it doesn't mean that i believe everything they're saying but you have to look at the person to decide whether or not, for one, if they they are being truthful. So that's the first thing. And then you got to be sure not to just dismiss stuff. I'm very, very open minded. So I'm willing to listen to whatever they have to say. And then at the end of the day, if I decide, you know, I just don't believe what he's saying or he didn't do his work well, you know, whatever, then that's my my deal. But I never insert that opinion into my show. With that being said. 
you've you've covered a large array of topics on your show everything from hollow earth to flat earth to uh the mandela effect which i find absolutely fascinating you had a show a couple of shows ago about a uh, police officer that uh did exorcisms called uh, deliver us from evil what do you tell me a little bit of the listeners a little bit if they haven't heard tell them a little bit about that storyline and and some of the other topics that you've covered that you really found fascinating well that that story is incredible uh ralph sarti is a new york uh policeman and uh he was also doing exorcisms on the side i mean that's just unheard of but this guy was uh exposed to the worst as far as these demonic entities. So he's <laughs> he has worked with um, some really, um, I, I would say, uh, people in the paranormal world that are very, very well respected. And I, I was lucky enough to get an interview with Lisa Collier Koo, who co-authored the book, Delivers from Evil. It was also turned into a major motion picture. And it detailed like some of his cases uh, involving exorcisms, involving haunted houses, uh, and involving um, just uh, cases where, you know, one was um, a, a lady was uh, possessed. However, you know, he went through a series of exorcisms with her and never, ever got the demon out. I mean, to this day, I asked her, I said, does the lady still have the demon? And she said, yes. It, she, she never they were never able to exercise the demon out of her. So um, it was interesting to hear that she also said uh, demons have the ability to be in one place uh, and another place at the same time. But Ralph Sarchi, to me, is the most interesting guy in the paranormal period. He's very, very hard to get an interview with. I haven't been successful at that, but I'm going to continue to try to pursue him. Um, but he is a, a guy that is, um, you know, he's got a good heart. He means well. Everything he does is absolutely free right now. He's been getting a lot of his cases from Facebook, believe it or not. And, uh, you know, like I say, he doesn't charge anything. But he's he's a guy that to me is, I describe him as fearless. But she did say there were times where he was scared. But to continue to do this type of work, you would have to be fearless in my opinion. But one of the other things that I've really enjoyed talking about is conspiracies. Um, now, I do have a show that I haven't released yet. It's going to be with uh, James Fetzer. James Fetzer talks about the conspiracy of 9-11. Um, he talks about the um, the school shooting up in uh, Connecticut. Uh, all of that being uh, false flags. False flags are just fascinating to me that um, – <laughs> that our only country can pull something like that, you know, and then pull the wool over everybody's eyes to hide it. So um, I have heard things about that, but to hear this man speak um, about the details and how they pull this stuff off is just amazing. So conspiracies are near and dear to my heart. I love hearing about those. And then also um, the haunting of, of um, what was her name? Moffat, uh, Deborah Moffat. 
one of the most incredible haunting stories I've ever heard in my life. And um, that story, basically, I'll just give you a little rundown of that, is um, she was haunted or, or I would say imprisoned by a demon for about four years. And the demon wanted her mother-in-law and they lived in absolute terror for four years and were never able to free themselves until they met up with some great people at the end. I mean, it's a great story, but, um, you know, things about, uh, you know, beds moving, uh, things appearing and disappearing um, from one house to another. I mean, this this haunting actually involved three different properties, so three different houses. So that that's another example of how demons are able to be in, um, you know, several places at one time. Oh, that's so amazing. I mean, all, all the stories that I've been able to get uh, my guests to talk about have just been incredible. And uh, I can, I hope to be able to, to continue to find these, um, you know, guests that are, are willing to just, um, like I said, talk and, and share all their experiences and, and let us enjoy those uninterrupted. <laughs> let me ask you a question because you mentioned the conspiracy um, episode that you've got coming up with the, the school shootings and 9-11. Do you ever feel like that when you do a topic like that, that can be controversial? Do you ever double, you know, think about, you know, eh, do I really want to do this? Is this a good move for me? Could this be a bad move? What are your thoughts on something like it? Because we did the same thing when we did our show on uh, the Freemasons. You know, I wanted to do that from the time we started this podcast, and it took us all the way to, I think, episode 25 or 26 before we finally got the nerve to do it and was still nervous about it. But it turned out <laughs> turned out great on our end. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, what, what are your thoughts on that? Is that something that's crossed your mind at all? Well, no, it hasn't because, I mean, trust me, you're not the only one that's ever talked about, um, you know, that subject. I mean, it's it's a hot topic, to be honest with you. And so... Um, you know, you're not you're not you're not doing anything wrong. You're just allowing a guest or yourself. You're talking about what you know about the subject yourself. I mean, you're not doing any harm, per se. So, no, I don't worry about it. Honestly, I just um, find authors, find people that have, uh, you know, put out some great books, you know, done some great researchers. It doesn't matter to me if they are an armchair researcher because I find that armchair researchers are very thorough. So, um, but I don't think it's something that should hinder you and it it definitely doesn't ever hinder me. I don't have any second thoughts about anything like that. That's awesome. See, that's one of the things you can tell the conviction in your voice uh, that you, you know, you believe in what you're doing. And I think that comes across that, that you're a, you you come across as a very strong uh, person of conviction of you believe what you're doing and and you're just going to put it out there and I like that that's what I respect about you and this may come as a surprise and I don't know if you've ever heard this before but your voice reminds me of when did you ever see the movie the warriors the warrior no I haven't I've never seen that you have to go back and watch it now it's an old movie it's from the late 70s but all through the movie they keep going to this disc jockey over the radio and all you ever see is just the bottom of her mouth speaking in the microphone. But she talks so much like you. And the first time I heard you, I was like, man, she sounds just like the DJ on the Warriors. And it just captivated me because I always, you just, 
you have an essence of cool about you. You just come across extremely cool. And uh, that's, a, that's an ultimate compliment to you. You're fantastic to listen to. I love to listen to your stories and the way you put them out, and your voice just fits what you're doing. So thank you for having an awesome voice. Hey, thank you. I appreciate that. I do hear that a lot, and that, that's a big compliment. So, yes, thank you. I appreciate it. Well, K-Town, I like to always try to um, not get super personal, but try to learn a little bit about uh, the the people behind the mic that maybe you don't get to display very much. Is there anything you'd like to share with us, like maybe what kind of music you like or who your favorite food is or anything that you want to share? Well, I'll tell you what, I have adopted a little boy. He's nine years old now. And um, I spent uh, about 10 years in the military. Uh, I've traveled all over the world. It was the best time of my life. My son is my world. And, um, you know, I believe in, in helping people. I mean, that that is really my calling, I do believe. I mean, I love podcasting, but helping people is what I love more than anything. And so... I'm very, <laughs> a very curious person. I'm very open. Uh, like I said before, I'm very open-minded. I'm very open to learning new things. Um, I love meeting new people. And and podcasting has really put me in, into the position to meet people that uh, there is no way that I would otherwise. So I'm thankful for that, like yourself. I mean, you and I would never, I never talked if we both didn't have podcasts, you know, so I am thankful because there's some very, very good people in this uh, podcasting community and uh, the people that my show has, has brought to my, it brought into my life. I'm very thankful for those people because, because, um, you know, you, you, you don't expect, you don't expect some of my listeners to really say, Hey, I, I wish you continued success. Um, I listen to you all the time. Um, you know, you bring so much joy to my life, my family, my kids. Um, you don't, that kind of stuff is so unexpected, but yet it's so appreciative. And um, my journey thus far, I'm, I'm very thankful for it. That's awesome. And, and I can be one of those people to say you bring joy to my life. Because I love the show, I listen to podcasts all day long, and and I share the the audience will be the first to tell you if I find one I like, I share it because I'm not going to hold that information to myself. I want everybody to experience the same joy I got, and uh, obviously that's why I have you on. You know, I'm telling everybody right now, Mysterious Radio. If you haven't heard it, subscribe today. You're going to be wanting to leave them a five star review in just a couple of minutes after listening to the shows, and. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's that's the way I feel about it. I don't hold back, and uh, I'm truthful to my audience, and they love it. I get people all day long saying, hey, what was the one you said the other night? I forgot. I had that happen today. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm happy to be able to say that I'm a, I'm a proud listener of Mysterious Radio, and uh, I'm hoping a lot of these fans out here listening tonight will probably see the respect level I have for you. How could they not? I mean, if I thought I, I respected you before this, I respect you even more now because um, – I realize how genuine of a person you are on top of, of what I already knew. So thank you so much, K-Town, for coming on. How can these people get a hold of you on social media? Well, uh, the best way to do that is to reach out to me on my Facebook page. It's Mysterious Radio, and you can 
Send me a private message. Many of my listeners do, or you can send me an email at show at mysteriousradio.com. You can also subscribe and listen to the show on iTunes. Um, you can also go to CastBox, uh, Audio Boom, however you choose to listen to the show. I'll be very grateful for that. And um, guest on the show that you may want me to contact to have on Mysterious Radio are always welcome as well. So I appreciate you so much, uh, Jerry, for having me on the show. And I'll tell you what, <coughs> I will definitely tell my listeners about your show because you got a fantastic show and I want to encourage you to keep going and don't be scared to, uh, you know, talk about the, the more risky stuff. You're not doing anything wrong, but people are very appreciative for the information that you um, allow others to talk about. So I appreciate your um, invitation to be on your show. No problem. Glad to have you. And uh, maybe sometime we'll do another little show where we actually just talk back and forth about a topic and have some fun with it. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm definitely open to that. Thank you so much, K-Town. Much continued success in your future. I know it's coming. And um, best of luck with anything that you do in future endeavors. Thank you so much, Jerry. Thank you so much. And we'll talk to you soon. All right. See, how can you not want to listen to her show after that? She really is a great host, and she does let her people speak. And like I said, if you get a chance, you really want to check out the Conspiracy Theory one. But all of her shows are great. I love all of them. Uh, give her a listen guys you've been great this has without a doubt been our longest show we're at like a, an hour and 20 minutes so for all of you saying we need an hour our longer shows guess what they keep getting longer but uh, don't expect the ones in the future to be this long uh, next week we got a good show for you I'm not going to spoil it by telling you what it is but if you go to our Facebook page it, it's right there and you can see what the next show is going to be and we love you guys keep sending us the reviews on iTunes that helps way more than you'll ever realize so please thank you for that. Yes, thank you guys. And you all have a wonderful week and remember to love one another. Thank you guys for listening. We appreciate you so much. See you next week. They would like to thank you folks for kindly dropping in. You're all invited back next week to this locality to have a heaping helping of their hospitality. Hillbilly, that is. Y'all come back now, dear.